Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Supermarket Free Sample Guy. Mr. Supermarket Free Sample Guy. Though man dreads few things more than a trip to the supermarket, you offer us hope and sometimes a free mini weenie. I love that freebie weenie. What exactly do you have? Aerosol cheese products, deep fried morsels. Who cares? If it's on a toothpick and it's free, it could be plutonium and we'd eat it. It's all good, baby. For a guy wearing oven mitts and an apron, you're all right. So crack open a nice cold Bud Light Titan of the toothpick, because you put the free in freedom. Light beer at Isaac Bush, St. Louis, Missouri. And Wangert winds it up, delivers. Tommy drills one high and deep to center. Away, way, way back. Gone deep into the picnic plaza. And that might have even got out of the ballpark. Jim Tommy has just left Jacobs Field onto Eagle Avenue. That will take two tape measures. The tribe down two to one. Kim Beck is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Pauly's Island, South Kagalecki. Half man, half podcast machine. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's good, you cement freaks? Want to welcome all of you back into my dojo this week as this BKP freight train continues to traverse through space and time. We take on an in depth historical and biographical look at the stories, personalities, pop culture, and in this week's case, the stadiums. That have been sewn into the very fabric and essence of the American pastime. Hello, everybody. 
I'm Jake Robinson, your host here at Backwards K-Pod, and I'm not even bullshitting. The pace of the show has made me so proud to be associated with this audience as the pod continues to grow exponentially, and I just learned that the word exponentially means uh, a lot, so yeah, it's growing a lot. Nothing lasts forever, but as long as this pace of growth continues, I'm proud to be your captain, gatekeeper for the game's history. My core audience has almost religiously followed me throughout my seven years of digital creations. And for that, I'm forever indebted. But there's a paradigm shift in motion right now on the show. And it's uh, it's it's really taking off in year two. And the data showing that BKP is steadily expanding the bubble towards new listeners. The base is growing. And it truly touches me that anyone would take... You know, time out of their day to listen to an old man profess his undying love for a kid's game. But here we are, and I thank you. I promise to give you everything that I have for this game, and I want to thank you for stopping by. I want to also say thank you for the messages I received about Martin Digo show last week. I got a message from Jeremy in Ohio that said, Great job on the Digo show. Such an amazing player. More versatile than show, and I've never even heard of him before. And folks, that genuinely touched, my, touched me. And, and, and that's why I do this show. To me, it is perfectly understandable that a true red, white, and blue-blooded American baseball fan may have never heard of Digo before. 90% of hardcore fans have at least heard of guys like Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, Cool Papa Bell. But there is a whole cast of Negro League players who have been lost in the shadows of time. It's my belief uh, people should know these guys. And and I have it in my heart to have a whole separate wing of stories from the Negro Leagues before I retire this mic. So, thank you for the line, Jeremy. I'm glad the pod is doing what I had anticipated when I envisioned this project. And that's open new portals to baseball universes you may have never known existed. I also think it's very cool that you had the open mind to listen to a show about something you had zero knowledge of. That tells me a lot about your passion for the game, Jeremy. Thank you for the line. And speaking of building wings and backwards K-Pod, we're going to go back inside one this week that I began constructing last year. And that's the stadium wing, uh, both Past and present. I started with the oldest stadium in the current MLB uh, platform, which of course was Fenway Park back in 1909. And we are working our way up through all of the current MLB stadiums. And I've also done the throwback cribs too. Cribs that aren't in use anymore. All those stadium shows are in the archives. And I feel like, you know, the stadium wing here is, is getting pretty expansive. I need to catch up on the Negro League style uh, side of this. As, uh, you know, this week, I'm prepared to give you the history of the now 10th oldest stadium in the league today. Progressive Field in Cleveland. Or, as it was originally called, Jacobs Field. Or simply, the Jake. Now, uh, before we get started, I want to clear up a couple of things. I'm going to be calling the, the field by its original name today, Jacobs Field, and I will be calling the team the Indians. It's just too confusing going back and forth. So, for the sake of this pod, it's Jacobs Field and it's the Cleveland Indians. So, 
if I could clear this platform, kiss and hug your loved ones goodbye, as we load up our BKP time travel choo and I'm calling all aboard, as I set our time and destination for April 4th, 1994, where the city of Cleveland, Ohio is undergoing a much needed renaissance for the once beleaguered city. It's the very first game of the brand new MLB Cathedral known simply as Jacobs Field. The club has a pregame ceremony where they retire the first black ball player in the American League, played for the Cleveland Indians, Larry Doby. The usually reserved Doby becomes very emotional during the speech, as do the Clevelanders that are there that day. And something feels different this year in Cleveland. With the Indians down 2 to nothing in the bottom of the 8th, and with Mariners ace Randy Johnson seemingly shutting down the young talented team for no hits through seven. Rookie Manny Ramirez gives us a glimpse of his future's uh, prodigious bat, prodigious RBI bat here. He drives in two with a double to tie the game. In the 11th, the Tribe would christen the crown with its first victory when Wayne Kirby would walk it off with the game winning single. And that first game saw future Hall of Famer Eddie Murray unhook the first base bag, first base bag and walk to the dugout with it at the conclusion of the top of the first inning after playing his 2,369th game at first base, surpassing Hall of Famer Jackie Beckley, who held the record since 1907. Steady Eddie would also become the first Indians batter to homer in the new crib. And in that very moment in time, the exciting and emotional ending of Game 1 would reverberate throughout the Cleveland fan base and signify the changes that were about to take place for both the Indians and the city. In an instant, gone were the memories of the sparsely attended games at the dreary baseball ship box that was Municipal Stadium. The stadium that housed the team before that glorious April day in 1994. After years of planning and debate, the Indians were finally able to walk away from the multi-purpose monstrosity municipal for the greener pastures of Jacobs Field, only to see their long-awaited postseason possibilities evaporate in thin air when the disastrous strike of 1994 cursed them in true Indians fashion. Going back to the 1980s, the Browns and the Indians were both very unhappy with the dated municipal stadium. And the two teams were continuously engaged in talks with civic leaders about a location for a new crib. In fact, one of the earlier plans was to construct a dome stadium that the two teams would share. And it would be paid for by Clevelander tax dollars. A ballot initiative was introduced to raise the property tax on the city's civilians to put towards funding the multi-purpose dome, and it fell to a crushing defeat on May 8, 1984, by nearly a 2-to-1 vote. The people of Cuyahoga County had spoken, but the then-Governor Richard Celeste refused to call it an abject failure for, for the building of the dome, as he still had high hopes of securing his legacy, but the vote opened his eyes about the fans and their refusal to abide by a tax hike and he began thinking of other financial sources and streams to accomplish his goals. And even though it was considered a relatively low turnout election, 
There did seem to be interest in a proposed dome. Precincts reportedly ran low on nonpartisan ballots that bore the ballot initiatives and not the primary candidates. The next year, city architect Robert Corna proposed another covered stadium, which was going to be called the Hexatron. That just sounds god-awful. But the project, it never made it past the rendering stage, and it was never even put on the ballot. Despite all the funding uncertainty, the city began to acquire property throughout the city to possibly house their teams. From December of 1985 to April of 1996, the two teams had agreed on design objectives. Demolition of the buildings on the site now known as Gateway began in June of 1987. And while the property acquisitions were secure, the city of Cleveland still had a major hurdle in the process. How to finance this vision. City politicians came up with a syntax to replace the property tax proposal. The syntax would be applied to the sale on all alcohol and cigarettes. And it came to a vote on May 8, 1990 in a ballot initiative. Six years to the day after voters vetoed the property tax increase, the syntax initiative would be passed at 51.7% to 48.3%. So, not an overwhelming majority at all, folks. The 15-year tax was projected to generate $275 million and would take effect on August 1st, 1990. The voter turnout was considered very high by primary uh, election standards as Cuyahoga County citizens stormed the polls with an interest in having their voices heard on the stadium proposal. Opponents of the initiative balked at their price tag and debated the usual narrative that, you know, the money could go to other areas of the city instead of financing sports facilities for billionaire owners. And, you know, look, it's a valid debate. And it takes place in any city that's looking for a new crib. Look at all the fury in Kansas City and Oakland right now for stadiums. And this week, we find out MLB has instructed the Brewers that they need over $443 million in renovations to the, st- to the stadium uh, formerly known as Miller, Miller Park. Or else. And if I'm Milwaukee, I would get real fucking nervous when MLB tells you or else. You've already lost one team in that city's history. So yes, it's a lot of money. And as long as taxpayers are going to have to accept some of the burden for the price tag and renovations going forward, there's always going to be debates on the merits of shelling out huge wads of cash. For Cleveland, it has worked out well. But Oakland is broke. That city's fucking broke. The taxpayers in that market are unwilling or unable to meet that cost. It truly is city by city, community by community. There really is no broad paintbrush when it comes to this. So, with the financing secure and the $344 million gateway project, ground was broken on the property in 1992 with uh, plans to house both the Indians and the NBA Cavaliers. The Browns, however, were left out in the cold. Uh, still playing in Municipal Stadium where they paint the dirt green because grass don't grow there. That would be a huge mistake. As four years later, 
the Browns would bowl for Baltimore and become the NFL Ravens. The excavation was called the most monumental in the history of Cleveland since the building of the Terminal Tower in the 1920s. And I found this interesting in the research. For hundreds of years, the location of the new Jacobs Field was used as a Native American burial ground. Which, you know, just the irony of having the team name Indians, you build a stadium on the site of a once Native American burial ground, and then the name gets taken from you. That these things are not connected. Or are they? I do find that ironic as a historian. Some things truly do come full circle. Elsewhere on the grounds, back in 1903, a Salvation Army Citadel stood on the spot now occupied by Centenary's Field, while Eagle, Eagle School sat on the street with the same name. Uh, Eagle Street is the street that runs behind the current scoreboard and home run ports. It's also the street where Tomei hit that blast you heard at the top of the show uh, when he put it out of uh, Jacobs Field. In the late 19th century, Cleveland City Council approved the location of the Central Market to be situated on the intersection of Ontario, Woodland, and Broadway. By 1890, to put it nicely, uh, this section, this Central Market, it's a shithole, literally. It was antiquated and it lacked sanitary facilities. The market house that stood where it remained, it became a genuine safety and health hazard. It would burn to the ground in 1949, just 14 months after Cleveland last saw a World Series winner. The archaeologists who helped excavate the site before construction, they found a soggy baseball that was at least 100 years old, as well as broken bottles, cisterns, and big teeth. The architecture firm of Helmuth, Obata and Castlebaum of Kansas City, Missouri. They were given the job and a $161 million budget for the Jacobs Field project. $161 million in 1992. It has about $350 million of purchasing power in the 2023 economy. And if you're a frequent listener of this show, we've spoken at length about the HOK architecture firm on well, the last three, three of the last four stadium shows that I've done, Kaufman Stadium, New Comiskey, and Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Like I said, this is a construction that entails housing the Cavaliers and the tribe. And the entire cost for the 28.5 acre project, it had a budget of $360 million. That's about $800 million today. Taxpayers would put half the bill while the rest would be covered by the private sector, as well as the Indians and the Cavaliers. They also raised money by selling $20 million worth of 10-year leases for luxury boxes at both venues, as well as the sale of stadium revenue bonds. By the end of 1992, almost 2,000 pieces of structural steel were in place, and the upper deck and right field is already standing. Down the left field line, the steel structures for the Indians' front office were established. By February of 1993, 60% of the steelwork was complete, even though the site itself was essentially 
a parking lot just a year earlier. There was even a 25-foot high observation deck installed where fans could show up three days a week and watch the progress of the rising modern-day Valhalla. You will notice a lot of exposed steel in her skeleton as HOK, who always likes to ingratiate their cribs and the surrounding landscape of the city, well, they blended Jacobs with the retro redo of the Cleveland skyline. And they took it even farther, adding vertical light towers to blend in with the city's skyscrapers. The lights are meant to resemble smokestacks in homage of the town's industrial heyday. The fans would get an up-close look at the yard before the 1994 opening day when the tribe took on the Pirates in an exhibition game on April 2nd. Two days before that rookie, uh, Manny Ramirez would smoke that huge game-time double versus unit in the 8th. From that very first exhibition game, Clevelanders put their flag of approval in the ground and to this day have an almost symbiotic relationship with the ball yard. The fans appreciated their new proximities to the Cleveland baseball heroes. The new sight lines made the viewing experience of Municipal Stadium obsolete overnight as they were littered with obstructive view seats because of the concrete poles that held up uh, the upper levels. Thomas Chema, the executive director of Gateway Economic Development Corporation of Cleveland, said the only polls inside of Jacobs Field from here on out will be of the ethnic variety. Two days later, President Bill Clinton throws out the first pitch in the stadium's inaugural game. That was won by the Wayne Kirby walk-off. And the national accolades began to stream in. Many of the scribes were blown away by the connection to the cribs of yesterday uh, with this new house for the young, talented team that's on the rise. Jacobs Field, with her exposed steel and brick facade, they gave off a natural aura of strength. She is connected to her blue-collar city and working-class roots. It's a place where... You drink beer and talk about the tribe's tortured history. Not a place where you sip wine, eat brie cheese, and talk about books. Hell, unless that book is about Rocky Calavito, I guess. The club decided a clean break from Municipal was best, and who could blame them? They left a pass in the past, and they didn't transfer anything from the mistake by the lake, as she was affectionately called. Not even home plate. They even left the sad but featured giant-lighted Chief Wahoo at that dismal stadium, and it now sits on display at the Western Reserve Historical Society. The new crib had way less seats than Municipal. At one time, the team's former home had the most seats in all of American sports with 80,000. While Jacobs Field had half that number, one of the indelible features of the new crib was the Bob Feller statue that was paid for by the sale of engraved bricks. Today, Cleveland has five bronze statues at the ball yard. There are three outside of her, Larry Doby, Lou Bedrell, and Bob Feller. And there is Jim Tomei inside of Jacobs and Frank Robinson's statue uh, waiting you in Heritage Park. And you may be asking yourself, why is Tomei the only statue in, you know, prominently featured inside the park. And the general rule for the near future of statues, as I understand it through the research, is that players who did not play at Jacobs will sit on the outside of the gates. 
while those who honored Clevelanders with their play inside of Jacobs Field will be inside the gates. However, the Robinson statue that sits at Heritage Park is inside the gates. So I'm not quite sure if this was just an anomaly to the rule or if they have broken away from the original intent. Maybe one of you Cleveland fans can explain that to me in an email or on social media. Because I think the original idea is fantastic. And it you know it remains in line with the, you know, leave the past behind and only venture forward into the great unknown. Now, the team also has some retired numbers in their long-storied baseball career uh, history. The rule of thumb for retiring numbers in Cleveland is generally speaking based on the fact that the player has to be a Hall of Famer. However, there are two numbers in the club history that do not represent Hall of Fame careers that have been retired. The first number is 455, and I will explain the significance of that number shortly. The next retired number of an Indian not in the Baseball Hall of Fame, is the number 18 in honor of former pitcher Mel Harder. Harder not only had a 223-186 and record on the bump for Cleveland, but he had 14 years of double-digit wins in a 20-year career. And he coached the club for 16 years when he was done playing, cementing himself as a loyal warrior among the faithful. If you look up in the right field nosebleeds, you will see revered numbers in Cleveland baseball. Number three. Earl Averill, number five for Lou Pedrell, number 14, Larry Doby, number 19, Bob Feller and his heater from Van Meter, arguably the greatest of all Indians who ever played, number 20, my dude, Frank Robinson, number 21, Bob Lemon, and Cleveland's latest retired number, 25, from my homie Jim Tommy. You can say whatever you want about that team's futility through the decades, but that is quite a class of retired numbers. And I'm thinking, you know, look, Trish Speaker probably didn't have a number, right? So, you know, he's not retired. He don't have a number retired. And I'm sure there are other Hall of Famers with no numbers that are escaping me here on the spot. <laughs> Cy Young, right? Cleveland has had some fucking ballers play in that fucking city. The new roster of Indians going into uh, the brand new Jacobs Field was worth the price of admission. They had a core of young talent in place. Catcher Sandy Alomar, Carlos Bayerga, Omar Vizquel, Kenny Lofton, pitchers Charles Nagy, as well as sluggers Albert Bell, Jim Tomei, rookie Manny Ramirez. The cast of youngins still reaching for their respected ceilings were also complemented by the veteran hands of Eddie Murray and Dennis Martinez, who made that first start in the, in the inaugural season for Jacobs Field. The franchise was banking on, you know, the newfound baseball spirit attached and they basically they bonded in synergy with an emerging baseball power with blossoming young players and experienced vets and they were hoping it would all come to fruition and take root in the proud but demoralized baseball town of Cleveland. And to this day, 1984 baseball strike, you know, it really bothers me. I feel like as a baseball fan, we were all robbed of a World Series instant classic. In my opinion, and this is just my stupid opinion, 
the baseball universe was headed for an Indians Expos World Series that year. Maybe Cleveland breaks the 35 years of World Series utility at that point. Maybe the Expos win and they get a new stadium and they never leave for D.C. To this day, it just feels to me that the 94 Series could have had consequential ripples that would have reverberated and changed history and probably the course of both of these teams. The day the strike goes down in 1994, the Tribe is in second place in the newly formed AL Central with a 66-47 and record. That team was absolutely must-see scary. The Yankees were very good that year, but in my mind, Cleveland was going to be the team to beat in the postseason had there been one. In 1995, once the CBA brokered the Indians, dominated going 147. Winning the AL Central over the Royals by 30 games. They had the division locked up by September 8th. And they eventually won the AL pennant, only to be defeated by the Atlanta Braves in six games, which I covered in both the Chipper Jones and Greg Maddox shows. They, they, they had added more veteran bats that year going into 95, including Tony Perez, Dave Winfield, and pitcher Earl, Horse, Earl Hershiser. They also saw their electrifying lineup blossom as Albert Bell finished with a 1.091 OPS and 50 home runs. Jim Tomei added 25 dogs and an OPS of 996. Manny Ramirez blasted 31 home runs, sported a 960 OPS. Sandy Almar with an 810 OPS and Bayerga with an 807 OPS. All those guys, including leadoff stick Kenny Lawton, hit better at Jacobs Field than on the road. The Indians had continued success through the 90s. and 96, they again made the post, but lost the ALDS to the Orioles. The 1997 Indians, despite winning only 86 games that year, came tantalizingly close to breaking the now 48 years of futility before losing Game 7 of the World Series in the 11th inning of the bat of an Edgar Renneria walk-off championship winning single and the Florida Marlins. In 98, the Tribe lost to the Yankees in the ALCS. And in 99, they lost the Division Series. And they lost that to the Red Sox. After the loss to Boston in the playoffs, it shut the door on an era of Cleveland baseball. Dick Jacobs, the owner of the Tribe since 1986, he sold the team to Larry Dolan, the current owner, for a then record $320 million. The Indians missed out on the postseason baseball in 2000, but returned in 01 and lost to Seattle in the first round. From June 12, 1995 to April 1st, 2001, Jacob Field sold out 455 consecutive dates. So that's why that number, 455, has been retired. As the re-energized baseball fans of the Cuyahoga embraced the first winning baseball they had seen in over 40 years. That 2001 season would, in many ways, be the final chapter of the Jacobs Field, of that first Jacobs Field era of Indians. And folks, I think it's where I'm going to take a break. When I come back, I'm going to give you the more of the skinny on this beautiful building. We're going to keep this trip, this train right here parked Outside of Jacobs Field. I'll be our BRB, uh, Cement Freaks. I'll be right back.
Gage Geek, the executive producer of Backwards K Pod. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish boil. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the Fishing Hand Cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap only to touch my eyes half hour later and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun no Bay spices. Well, we also have a hand cleaner specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish or fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, Mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summertime shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning. Crawfishhandcleaner.com Biggest second day crowd in Cleveland since way back in 1948. 113 games in 1954. That ball is belted, and Eddie Murray has hit it out. First Cleveland Indian to hit a home run. And the first display of fireworks here. Eddie Murray. Into the bleachers in left field and his 442nd career home run. And it is 6-2 Cleveland. And that ties Dave Kingman on the list for 20th spot. Take a look at that home run stroke by Eddie Murray. Fastball right down the middle of the plate. And Mr. Murray continues to pile up the numbers. Come on, 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 come on,
giving you the lowdown about how Jacobsfield came to be. Uh, during the 80s, the city of Cleveland had tried really hard to, you know, uh, find the funding for a brand new state. But the Indians and the Browns were very disgusted with their situation. The Cleveland Cavaliers wanted to have it with theirs. Uh, they came up with a property tax that was voted down in a ballot initiative. And then they came up with a sin tax where they would basically put a tax on cigarettes and alcohol, and the citizens of Cuyahoga County approved that. And within two years, one of the most beautiful baseball stadiums in Major League Baseball was built, and it had an infusion of this awesome young team. I mean, just brilliant talent. They went to two World Series. A core of Kenny Lawton, Manny Ramirez, Jim Tomei, Carlos Bayerga, Charles Nagy. I mean, this team was spectacular. Uh, they lose out on the 90, their first season, the 94. They lose out to the strike. Probably would have went to the World Series that year. They lost two World Series, that core did, in very painful ways. Uh, you know, the David Justice home run, one to nothing, Atlanta clincher. And the Edgar Renneria walk-off. And now we're entering the 2000s. And that era and that chapter has pretty much... Well, it's pretty much over. It's a whole new era of Indians now. By the time the team made it back to the postseason in 2007, the Indians roster was completely different. And the landscape of baseball had changed as well. There was a glimpse of that Jacobs Field magic on October 5th, 2007 in a playoff game versus the Yankees as Indians center fielder Grady Sizemore is walking to the plate. Uh, Little tiny bugs, they're called midges, they begin to swarm and seemingly attack the overwhelmed Chamberlain. And no matter how much he waved his arms in defense or walked around, nothing would deter the pesky gnat-like creatures from invading Jabba's space. And flustered, he walks Sizemore. His first pitch to Asdrubal Cabrera is wild, and Grady advances to second. Asdrubal sacrifices himself to put Sizemore on third with one out, and the irritated Chamberlain forces slugger Travis Hafner to line out soft in the second. And just when it seemed Chamberlain would dodge a bullet. He uncorked another wild pitch. This one to Victor Martinez, and Sizemore would score easily to tie the game. That, you know, they seemed surely destined to lose. Cleveland would win it in the 11th when Hapner drives in the walk-in, walk-off run versus pitcher Luis Vizcaino. 
The Tribe would eliminate the Yankees, but fall to the Red Sox in the ALCS, despite having a three games to one lead. The postseason would lead to more changes for Jacobs Field. In January of 2008, Progressive Insurance bought the name and rights to the ballpark for $3.6 million a year for 16 years, which now leads me to openly opine, as I'm prone to do sometimes, does Dolan ever put that money back into the team? I'm asking for a couple frustrated Cleveland Indian baseball fans, by the way. Corporate names. Don't even get me started on that horse shit. Corporate names don't benefit anyone but owners. But I digress. Many Indian fans were disappointed by the name change. I told you, these, these Cleveland freaks are connected to their team and stadium as much, if not more, than anyone. They had grown to love the name and the legacy of the man that it was named after. And the truth is, the Jacobs Field moniker, it almost didn't happen. Two months removed from that first, uh, two months before that first opening day, the crib still hadn't been named. Jacobs purchased the naming rights for $10 million. Before that, folks were just calling it Indians Ballpark. And at one point in 1993, there was a groundswell of support to name it Ray Chapman Field after the Indians player who was killed by a pitch in 1920. But in the end, the name was awarded to the man who helped shape and finance those early 90s teams and pushed all along for a new stadium. To the average Indians fan, Jacobs was a deity, a a loyal owner who worked hard to change the team's more brown culture. Taking his name off the building was blasphemy for many, and they still refer to it as Jacobs Field or the Jake. The Indians extensively renovated the ballpark between 2004 and 2016. The first move was to lower the seating capacity uh, from lower the seating capacity 40,000 down to uh, 35,000 and added more food concession stands in areas where children could play who can't sit still for four-hour baseball games with no pitch clock. You know, all these people that bitch about the fucking pitch clock, very few of them have kids or are responsible for taking kids to baseball games. It's very hard to keep a kid engaged in baseball for four hours. That's another story for another pop. They also opened the gate C entry for a picturesque view of the city. The home and visitors' bullpens were moved together and tiered above one another. A portion of the upper deck was removed and replaced with standing room only areas. In the right field corner, the Indians opened a two-story bar called The Corner. That includes a row of standing rails in front of it, replacing the seating that was originally there. The second phase of the renovation project saw walls and seats removed behind home plate at the third baseline to open the area to the concourse. The Indians added another bar in the area called the Home Plate Club which gives exclusive access to season ticket holders in the diamond and field box seats. They are notable uh, historical Indians slash Guardians memorabilia in the Terrace Club and the corner bar on display. Most of that has come from the now-closed Bob Feller Museum. Jacobs Field, Progressive Field, whatever you choose to call it, and hosted its third World Series in 2016 as the Chicago Cubs were able to break their 
own 108 years of baseball mediocrity at the hands of the Indians in seven hard-fought, traumatic games. The last game of the series ended the same way the 1997 World Series ended for the Trot, with Indians fans watching in horror as the Cubs beat Cleveland and extra innings. And boy, I tell you, the three World Series that I've seen Cleveland in, I mean, they just got beaten some of the most brutal ways. Brutal ways. You got the home run from Justice, the base hit from Renneria. They lose in extra innings to, to the Cubs. I mean, just brutal. Last offseason, Cleveland began more renovation projects on the ballpark at a cost of $200 million. They created an open concourse throughout the upper deck, expanded and upgraded the left field seating areas. They did some modifications to the seating area in, in the right field upper deck, as well as added seats behind home plate. They also boldly upgraded the clubhouse and the administration offices. And even though the park may look different than it did on that April day in 1994, the team has a new name, the stadium has a new name, neither of which has amused or deterred the fans, by the way. The goal of the ballpark remains the same, to bring Cleveland its first World Series title since 1948. Expect that to be the craziest day ever at the corner of Carnegie and Ontario. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seam heads of all ages, this is the story of Jacobs Field, the Jake, now known as Progressive Field. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed telling the story. I promise to try to be better next week. If you enjoyed hearing this, I do have other shows that have kind of intertwined with this this topic, which for me is the beauty of this show. Jacobs Field has a plaque to commemorate the amazing career of former Indians Ray Chapman, who is the only player in MLB history to die from an injury suffered on the field. I have a story in my catalog on the death of the Ray Chapman show. I have the Trish Speaker bio in my archives. I have the death of the Expo show as well, as I truly feel like the baseball universe missed out on a possible World Series matchup between Montreal and Cleveland that could have had history-changing ramifications on both teams and cities involved. You can find those shows or any of the other bangers in my growing vault of archives on any and all podcast platforms wherever you listen to your shows. Or you can go to diamondsnakejake.poppy.com to find them. I got uh, all nine stadiums. Well, I didn't do Tampa and I didn't do Oakland. Uh, those two shitboxes. Nobody, nobody wants to hear the history of those stadiums. But I have eight of the first ten Major League Baseball stadiums in current use. That's in my archives. I got, uh, you know, throwback crib shows, uh, Shine Park, Polo Grounds. I've done it all. Go in there, take a, take a look. A lot of these shows, they intertwine with one another. One thing's for sure. I will never charge you for the baseball content here at BKP. I'm just going to keep coming through Tuesday with that free. Baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Westport's finest, Al K-Line. Please support the sponsors who support the pre-content grassroots effort. If you're on a platform that offers you the chance to rate and review... 
please do so as you see fit. I ain't scared. Rates and reviews, they help my profile in the search engines. It's how I feed the dog. It enables me to keep doing the one thing that I love to do in this world. That's research this beautiful game of baseball and talk about it with all you beautiful-minded steamhead freaks out there. My goal in life until my last breath and I come running out of that cornfield with young legs again is to spread the gospel of baseball around the globe. Thanks for being there with me on my mission and giving me a purpose. A fella simply couldn't ask for a better audience. I got nothing but love for you, baby. So, with the history of Jacob's Field in my rearview mirror, I now turn my attention to next week's adventures, and I chop the head off of our baseball hydra, only to see two more baseball topics grow in its place. So, we go from a building that changed the fortunes for a proud Ohio city to a proud, competitive Ohio native who who helped change the fortunes of a once proud baseball power. Next week, folks, I'm going to dig into the legacy that is Thurman Munson, one of the greatest team leaders and catchers in baseball history. And the truth is, I've had this show circled since I scheduled it. I can't wait to learn about Thurman fucking Munson. But look, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod. If you're looking for the snake, I ain't hard to find. You can email the show, backwardskpod at gmail.com. The show's Twitter page is at back underscore K underscore podcast. My personal Twitter handle is jrobbie1. That's J-R-O-B-B-I-E and the number one. The YouTube page, it could use your subscription. The channel is Backwards K Pod. The Instagram is also at Backwards K Pod as well. But truthfully, I just enjoy hanging out with the OGs, the fans who have been with me from day one. Our drug of choice is the Facebook private group page, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Answer the questions and come on in if you like. Join the fun. You know, if you don't answer the easy questions, you won't get in. I'm into quality, not quantity. If you can't answer three simple fucking questions that have no right or wrong to them, you're not quality. You're not getting in. Okay. I think that about covered everything, right? Bop, bop, bop. Yeah, I think that's it. Thank you again for joining me in my dojo this week and opening up your kimonos with me. Thurman Munson next week. What a badass. I can't wait. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch, got their noses in their phones, looking unproductive and bored AF, by all means, take those little rugrats outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand told me in our one-on-one interview from last year, it's in the archives. You go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you next week, Seamheads. Peace.